0: Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. I am your host, Laura Reeves. Here at the Good Dog Pod, we are all about supporting dog breeders and responsible dog ownership. We provide dog lovers with the latest updates in canine health and veterinary care, animal legislation and legal advocacy, canine training and behavior science, and dog breeding practices. Subscribe and join our mission today to help give our dogs the world they deserve. Welcome to the Good Dog podcast, as well as the Good Dog webinar series. We have Dr. Casey Carl here from Print Genetics, and we are going to cover canine modifying coat colors and traits, talking about the genetics of that. For people who are asking if we can hear and see you, no. The panelists are the only ones that can sort of see each other. But you guys, as Kat mentioned, can speak in the chat, pop questions in there. We'll get those to Dr. Carl. And we have Dr. Judy Stella, who is the head of standards and all the good stuff at Good Dog, who will be helping and running questions. So if you have anything specific, get it to Dr. Judy. And I'm here to just kind of keep everybody in line. They gave me a whip and a chair, so we're good to go. (laughs) Some of you will have heard the podcast that we did with Dr. Carl earlier, uh, a month or so ago, so you are familiar with his fabulous presentation style. So, Dr. Carl, welcome. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm super excited to talk about this stuff, so hit it.
1: Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I'm very excited to be here as well, and got a few different things that we can talk about today. I got kind of a general topic outline here of the things that we're going to talk about. First of all, we're going to talk about just kind of a little intro and some definitions, just some words that we can kind of use to just get a foundation as to what we're going to be speaking about today, and so that we're all kind of on the same page there. We're going to talk about a couple of types of inheritance, specifically recessive and dominant, because these two particular inheritance patterns are really important in understanding how these traits and coat colors work. As Laura mentioned, we're going to be talking specifically about some modifying coat colors in these particular loci here. And basically, these coat colors are going to modify the coat colors that we refer to as our base or foundational coat colors. And we'll talk more about that here as we go. And then we will also talk some about traits, including related to curl, improper code, and a variety of other traits here that are important to many people. And then we will also do question and answer. I'm also happy to answer any questions as we go. So if you wanted to send some over via chat, you guys can feel free to interrupt me at any time there, Dr. Stella. I'd be happy to answer any questions as we go, just so that it makes a little more sense for everyone. If they have a question, hot topic at that moment, I'm happy to answer it So. Well, who am I? First of all, I probably know some of you out there that are listening today. You've probably talked to me on the phone if you've ever called into Popprint Genetics, but I'm a Washington State University graduate. Go Cougs. Graduated back in 2008, and I have a history in clinical medicine. I was in uh, clinical practice for about four years in the Portland, Oregon area, and then I joined with Popprint Genetics in 2013. It was great for me to join as a medical director with them because I saw a lot of inherited diseases in practice that were very challenging and in many cases didn't have any treatment options. And so I was very motivated to join PopRan and to be a part of moving forward with inherited diseases and how we might be able to prevent those. And it's been a great eight years there. So first of all, we got a few definitions that I think would be good for us to kind of go over here. The first one on the list is mutation or variant. The word variant is used a lot more commonly these days than mutation is. But essentially, this is just an alteration in the DNA code that can affect gene function. And that change in that gene function can end up resulting in disease or trait. Not always. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it may not make any change at all. In other cases, it can be completely deleterious so that an animal wouldn't be able to survive. But in some cases, these mutations may actually be very functional or actually still allow an animal to live, but may just result in some changes to them in terms of disease or traits. The next word on the list is allele, and allele is a common term that we use for one copy or one version of a gene, and that would come from a single parent, so each, each parent's going to pass on one copy of every gene to every offspring, and we often refer to that as an allele or a version of that gene. The next word would be genotype, and genotype is essentially just the combination of both of the alleles at any given location. So that would be basically the combination of both genes, one from each parent that we get, and we talk about genotypes frequently when it comes to genetic testing and what those might mean for an individual dog. And if a dog has two copies or two of the same allele, we refer to that state as a homozygous state in dogs. Dogs can be either homozygous normal and have two copies of the gene. In some cases, they could be homozygous mutant, where they'll actually have two copies of the genetic mutation. But that's just a very commonly used term. And then we have heterozygous, which is basically the exact opposite in the sense that there are two different versions of the gene in this case. So each parent would have passed on a different copy of the gene to the offspring, and We talk about heterozygous dogs often being carriers of what we refer to as recessive diseases or traits, and we'll get into that more here soon. And then lastly, we have phenotype. And phenotype is essentially that clinical or the physical presentation that we actually see that is essentially coded for by the genotype itself. And sometimes there can be multiple genotypes that actually give the same phenotype. And so that is an important consideration when we think about these things. First, we kind of have to think about specifically inheritance and how some of these traits are inherited. The first one we'll talk about is recessive inheritance. And recessive inheritance or recessive traits are those in which a dog has to inherit two copies of the associated genetic variant. And it's important to note that that's one from each parent. So one parent would pass on one copy and one parent would pass on the other. An example here are these poodles here on the right side. These poodles are essentially cream or white poodles And this is caused by a change in the E locus in dogs. And in order for these dogs to have this appearance, both of the parents would have had to have carried that little E at the E locus in order to produce these dogs. Dogs that only have a single copy of one of these recessive variants are considered carriers of the trait, but don't express it. So we would not expect a dog that only had a single copy of these to actually show it. But if bred with another dog that also had the same mutation, then they could produce dogs with that trait. And quite often, especially when we talk about color specifically, the recessive alleles are commonly notated with a lowercase letter. So in the case of these dogs here, this kind of cream to white color, these dogs would typically be expected to be little e, little e, and that little e is notating that this is the recessive version of this gene. And dogs that are carriers would have a capital E and a little e, and the capital E is dominant to the little e, so that means that we won't actually see that cream apricot or red color in this case unless this dog were to be bred with another dog that carried that. So what does that mean? So if we take a look at what we call here a Punnett square, and you may have seen this square here on the right if you've ever taken a biology course that had any genetics in it. This is a very useful tool to help us understand if we bred two dogs together, how their genes or how a specific gene or locus in this case might actually be passed on to offspring and to understand the ratio that we may get from a particular pairing of dogs. In this case, we have a situation where dogs are carriers of a recessive trait, meaning that they have one copy of a recessive trait, but neither of these dogs would actually show that recessive trait because it requires two copies for them to show it. But if you happen to breed two carriers of a trait together like this, and then we use this fancy Punnett square here where we have the capital letter here indicating the dominant version of the gene and then the recessive version here with the little a, and we can actually just kind of extrapolate this out pulling this into this square for each of these dogs. And what it does is it starts to give us a picture as to what we would expect from breeding these two dogs together. So let's say both of these dogs carried cream or apricot color. And what we would find is that about one out of every four puppies would have two copies of the regular version of the gene. These dogs would be normal or would not have the specific trait at all in their genome. About two out of four, 50 percent of the dogs would end up having one copy. And these dogs would be carriers of that particular trait, but would not be showing it. And then lastly, about 25 percent of the puppies would end up actually getting two copies of that and actually expressing that particular trait that we were looking to get. Now, if one of these dogs happened to actually have the trait, so say one of these carriers actually had two copies and actually had the trait there, then we would actually get more dogs, about double the amount of dogs that actually expressed that particular trait. But what we know is that both parents at least have to carry that in order to get a recessive trait. The other common method of the inheritance that we talk about would be dominant mutations. And I have a little Merle dog here that we see. And this Merle dog, Merle is one of the coat color patterns that is dominant, meaning it only requires one copy of the genetic mutation of the associated mutation to actually produce this pattern. And we're going to talk a lot more about all of these here a little bit later, about Merle at least. But in general, dominant diseases do only require that one copy of the associated genetic variant to develop it. And in this case, most dominant alleles, as I mentioned earlier, they tend to be notated with capital letters. So in the case of a merle dog, you're going to have a little M and a big M, and that big M is indicating the dominant mutation, which is responsible for producing this merle coat color that we see here in this dog. So very similar to what we did with the recessive traits, now we're showing a dominant inheritance pattern here, this dog expressing that whatever that trait is, and then we have a dog here that doesn't have that mutation and is therefore normal or clear for that particular trait. And we've kind of set up things here again, the normal dog being on top here, and then the dog with that dominant trait on the side. And as we go ahead and use our Punnett square again, as we did previously, and kind of pull in these copies of the gene, we will find out that... In this particular case, about two out of every four or half of the dogs, 50%, would actually end up as normal or clear and not have the trait. And then about 50% would actually end up with it. Now, there is a little bit of a concerning thing that we sometimes deal with in dominant mutations. And we'll talk about this in merle, in hairlessness, as well as natural bobtail here in a little bit. But in some cases with dominant mutations, if you breed two dogs that both have a dominant mutation together, any of the dogs that happen to get two copies of that dominant mutation, they can suffer from a deleterious issue of some sort. In the case of Merle, we'll talk about double Merle dogs that inherit two copies of that mutation. But if we follow the same pattern here with the Punnett square, and we go through the same type of process here, we'll find that if we breed two dogs together with this dominant trait, about 25% of them will actually not have the trait at all. About 50% will actually express the trait. And then there will be about 25% of the dogs that may have a deleterious effect because they've inherited two copies of that dominant mutation. In the case of merle, that would be the double merle appearance. In the case of some other of the traits we'll talk about today, it can end up resulting in, in utero death. So you end up with smaller litter sizes if you have some of the puppies end up getting two copies of these. And we'll talk about that more when we get there to those particular traits. So as I mentioned before, we're going to talk about some modifying coat colors. And those modifying coat colors modify the foundation or base coat color that is determined by these four loci that are outlined here in this big graph. They're the E locus, the K locus, the A locus, and the B locus. And this looks quite complex, but it's essentially showing different directions or different ways that these loci can actually influence color in dogs. And we can see here on this top one here, we're talking about the E locus. If a dog is little e, little e, it's going to be yellow or red and cannot produce black or brown hair pigment. If we're going down the other pathway, if the dog has a capital E at all, then we kind of have to go down this other pathway to figure out more of the foundational coat color. And I did talk about some of these foundational coat colors, at least kind of a cursory look at them on the Good Dog Pod with Laura Reeves back at episode 18. If you want to go check it out, you know, if there's interest, we may dive into this further. This is kind of the first of this type of presentation that I've done with Good Dog. And, you know, we could go back and maybe take a more in depth look at some of these foundational coat colors in the future if there's interest out there. But since we already kind of covered it on the podcast, we were going to step forward here and talk more about the colors that modify those particular loci. And so. Today, we are going to talk about the D, the E-M. We're going to briefly discuss the harlequin locust, which is found in Great Danes. And then we'll talk about the I-M and S-loci as well. This is my little critter down here on the bottom. His name's Spike. We had to give him a tough name because he's less than 10 pounds. But depending on the day, I also sometimes call him El Terrible because he looks real nice and he's really cute, but he's got an attitude much bigger than his size. And occasionally there could be people on the receiving end of that. I think if he were a human, he probably wouldn't be able to be allowed in public very often, but uh, we love him all the same. As I mentioned, these genetic variants will modify those base foundational coat colors. So the first one we're going to talk about is the D locus, and the D locus is also referred to as the dilute locus. It's actually located in what we call the MLPH gene in dogs. There are two alleles or two versions of the gene that we test for or that we're looking for, one of which is the capital D, which is the dominant version of the gene, and that is non-dilute. But this is a recessive trait. So dogs that get two copies of the little D, they will have a diluted coat color. And what that means is that the coat color that they would have had otherwise that would have been determined by those foundational coat colors, it essentially takes whatever color they would have had and dilutes it or makes it a much lighter color. So as you can see down here in the bottom, I've got these three different dogs. We've got a dog here, which is essentially a dilute black, and it almost looks black in this picture, but it's actually a very dark gray or charcoal appearance, often referred to as blue in many breeds in this Frenchie here. And dogs that are little d, little d, like all of these dogs are, they also have changes to their nose and foot pad color, which are also dilute in this case, and often will be very close in similar nature to their hair color. In the middle here, we have a dilute brown dog, which is essentially what nearly all Weimaraners are, is this dilute brown color, or often referred to as silver or gray, depending on what breeds you're talking about. And then over here on the far right, we do have a dilute fawn dog. I was trying to find a version of a dilute yellow like we see in some breeds, but I couldn't find it. But this dilute fawn is also something that we see quite commonly in a lot of breeds. You can notice how the nose color is kind of more of a gray This mask that we have on the face is also somewhat more gray, and there's almost a gray hue to the dog in general that we see in these dilute dogs. Now, it is really important to note that this is not the cause of progressive graying or fading, and this is something that we see quite commonly in breeds like the poodle. One of the people that are attending today to the presentation, they had sent in a question regarding a graying gene in dogs. We don't know what the graying gene is. It is very common in some breeds. It's common in poodle. The the person that was asking this question was specifically asking in Portuguese water dogs. And I'm not familiar with it being found in Portuguese water dogs very often. It wouldn't surprise me if it was present in there. But at this time, we don't actually understand or know the genetics behind that progressive graying at this time. And so this is an independent cause of a very similar appearance. The major difference is, is that dogs that have the D locus variant and is causing dilution, if they're little d, little d, These dogs are actually born with that co-color dilution, whereas the progressive graying or fading, these dogs will be born with their typical dark color, black or brown, and as they age, they'll actually see this color change as they go forward in age. There are multiple genetic variants at the D-locus. We are currently testing for two of them at Popprint Genetics, and they go by the D1 or D2 allele. Now the D1 is the one that's responsible for coat color dilution in a very wide variety of breeds, particularly the Weimariner, French Bulldog. There's a lot of breeds that have this, but this is the one that's found in the Weimariner and a lot of other breeds. And there's a second one that we're also currently testing for. It's been found in the Chow, the Thai Ridgeback, a few other breeds. I believe it's potentially found in some of kind of the Pitbull or Bully breeds. Now, the important part is, though, is that both of these mutations are both found in the same gene. And if a dog happens to inherit one copy of either of these mutations from both parents, so if, as long as a dog gets either D1 or D2 from either parent, as long as they get those, they will have a dilute coat. So, for example, a dog can have one copy of D1 from one parent and actually get the D2 mutation from the other parent, and they'll still have coat color dilution. It's still in the same gene, even though they don't necessarily have two copies of the exact same mutation. In this case, since these mutations are in the same gene, they still will produce dilution. This is a phenomenon that is often referred to as compound heterozygosity in dogs. Big fancy name for saying that essentially, since these are in the same gene, they can function somewhat similarly in terms of the traits that they would cause.
0: Can I interrupt? Uh, so yes, there's a couple. Of
1: sure. Coat
0: color dilution. There was a question about that. Do you know which of those variants is associated with the coat color dilution alopecia? And then we also had a question about blue and Afghan hounds. Do you know what yeah. which variant
1: it is? I would have to look in Afghans. I'm not sure if they're some of the ones that would fade into the color. If they do, then it would not be this. If they are born a blue color, then it would likely be due to one of these variants. I would have to look and see how that typically manifests in the Afghan. But in terms of the alopecia that you mentioned, unfortunately, there's not a specific genetic mutation that's known for that. We know that dogs that are dilute can develop color dilution alopecia. We don't fully understand why some dogs are more prone to it than others. It quite often starts as a progressive hair loss on the trunk. It does progress and quite often it can affect a large portion of the dog. It has to do with the way that melanin clumps in these dogs, in the hair of these dogs, and it ends up causing the hair to fracture as it emerges from the skin. Interestingly, tan areas are often unaffected, so if you look at these pictures, it's a little hard to tell in these pictures, but this tan areas down here, this is a Doberman that's in these pictures, and the tan areas down here on the leg actually still do have tan hair on them, whereas the other portions of the dog have actually lost a large portion of their hair and is very, very thin here in these other areas that are not tan. And this is a very common thing that we see. Sometimes this condition can also be associated by secondary bacterial infections of the skin, particularly in the hair follicles, referred to as folliculitis. And sometimes these dogs need to be managed long-term with that. Unfortunately, as I mentioned, we don't know the specific genetics behind why one dog would inherit or develop this alopecia, whereas others won't. Some breeds seem to be a lot more likely to develop the alopecia. For instance, Dobermans are one of the breeds that seem to have a very high likelihood of developing this alopecia if they happen to be dilute. Whereas other breeds like the Weimaraner don't seem to be quite as commonly affected. They can be, but they're much less likely to be than some other breeds. And There are probably some other genetic factors that play a role in this that we just don't quite know yet as to how that happens. And I did have another question that was sent in early, too, asking about blue puppies and how to avoid them. And essentially, it just comes back to this breeding again, just not breeding two dogs together that both carry these D-locus mutations, the little D-locus. That would be the most important thing. So one of the dogs would need to be capital D, capital D, in order to avoid producing those blue puppies. So the next one on our list here is the EM locus. It's in the MC1R gene. It's often referred to as melanistic mask. And this is a black or brown mask that we can see on a lot of dogs. It's most commonly seen on fawn or sable dogs. And it is a dominant trait, meaning that it only requires one copy of that EM variant to actually produce this mask. But they do have to have other conditions met in order for the mask to actually be seen in them. It's not really visible in a solid black or brown dog, or in the case of a dog that has white all over its muzzle, it may actually mask. It will mask where the mask will be. It will prevent you from seeing the mask on the face. For instance, on this picture here on the right with the St. Bernard, there's some other genetics going on here that produce this white color on the face. And this white is essentially a lack of pigment in this region. But if you notice just outside of the white on the St. Bernard, you can actually see a mask there. So this dog technically has a mask, but it's not going to be visible here where the white is on this dog because there's just simply no pigment there at all. Whereas this dog here on the left is a fawn-colored dog that does have this mask. It's very obvious to see, and this is the cause of the mask that we see in a lot of fawn-colored dogs, really common fawn pugs, fawn Great Danes. And other breeds. Sometimes you can actually have dogs that have masks if they would have had tan points. So, for instance, like the color pattern that we would see in a Rottweiler or Doberman, some other breeds also have that same coat pattern. A lot of breeds do. If those dogs have masks, in some cases, if their mask happens to be incredibly large on their face, sometimes it will actually even cover up the little tan markings that they have above their eyebrows. And so, some dogs that technically have tan points. If they also have a mask, they may not have the tan marks above their eyebrows like other dogs do that are also tan pointed. It's really important to note as well that this mask cannot be seen in cream apricot or red dogs or dogs that are little e, little e at the e locus, because dogs that are little e, little e at the e locus, they actually cannot produce black or brown in their hair coat. And so for that reason, you would not see this mask in them. Even if they had the genetics for it, it would not be able to be seen in that particular dog. So you're really only going to see this most commonly in Sable or Fawn dogs. Occasionally, you'll notice, as I mentioned, the tan eyebrows essentially missing in some tan-pointed dogs if they happen to have a very large version of the mask. But for the most part, it's going to be seen in fawn and sable. The next one we're talking about here goes by the eye locus or intensity locus. Now, this is somewhat of a new mutation here, and I actually got a question about this ahead of time. Someone was asking, is it true that cream-colored dogs are little e, little e? And indeed, they are. Cream-colored dogs are little e, little e, but there's definitely some variation in dogs that are little e, little e and what colors they can produce. They can be nearly almost white, like this white shepherd here in this picture, all the way up through a fox red color that we can see in poodles. We can see it in some quote-unquote yellow Labradors, but that fox red is considered a variation on that yellow theme there. But we do have them at a location known as the eye that is actually responsible for taking little e, little e dogs and making them much more white And it is the cause of this white appearance in white poodles, white shepherds, and a host of other breeds. It's definitely not the only cause of white, and there are other genetic mutations which cause white out there, specifically more of an extreme white appearance. Unfortunately, some of these mutations are also associated with deafness and issues. This particular mutation, as far as I'm aware, is not associated with deafness. It has not been associated with that, to my knowledge. But can be really useful if you really want to get that very light or white color in some lines of dogs. Right now at PopPrint Genetics, we are not currently offering it as a standalone test, but we do have it listed as one of our tests on our genetic screening product, the canine health check that we offer, that you can find at caninehealthcheck.com. We do plan to bring it to PopPrint Genetics as a standalone test in the future. We just don't have it available right now. But as I mentioned, dogs that inherit two copies of this mutation along with two copies of the little e will have this white appearance.
0: All right, crew. Thank you all for joining us. This has been part one of our episode. Watch this space. Part two will be coming up soon. Good Dog is a secure online community that advocates for dog breeders, educates the public, helps informed puppy buyers connect directly with certified good breeders, and promotes responsible dog ownership. Good Dog is offering its good breeders special advanced access to the video recordings and transcripts for the full three-part Q&A webinar series with Dr. Hutchinson. All you have to do is sign up as a breeder at GoodDog.com/join. That is G-O-O-D-D-O-G.com/join, or click the link in the show notes.